Welcome to The Journey to Wellness, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, exercise, mental health, and more. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Blake and Steely, welcome in the Journey to Wellness podcast. I'm so glad you took the time out of your schedule to come on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, we went to Miami University together when I transferred. We're in a bunch of nutrition classes together. And so it's kind of crazy that after all those case studies and <laughs> long hours and classes together and all those things, we're finally here doing a podcast together. We're finally both RDs too, which is exciting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All the memories of sitting till 2 a.m. eating pizza in the Philip Hall's lobby. <laughs> I remember that. Oh man, those were the days. Those were the days. But for those people that don't know you, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name is Lakin, as you said. I'm a registered dietitian. So I graduated from Miami a semester early, and I pursued a seven-month clinical-based internship with the University of Houston. Um, I had an emphasis with medical nutrition therapy at a level one trauma center and um, a bunch through pediatrics. I'm currently the clinical pediatric eating disorders dietitian, and I work at Cincinnati Children's. Nice. And so you kind of went to Texas for your internship, and I stayed in Columbus for my internship. And then right as you were finishing up and moved back to Ohio, I was moving to Texas. So we kind of missed <laughs> each other there. <laughs> yeah, Ben and I just did a little swap. It's okay. We're living through each other. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So can you talk a little bit more specifically about your role at Cincinnati Children's? And I guess before you do, I, I'll kind of frame how this podcast came about, because we were talking on the phone, catching up a little bit um, a couple of weeks ago, and I was asking you about your new job. And you were talking about it. And I had so many questions for you. I was just asking you like question after question. And I was like, wait a sec, this would be perfect for the podcast. Like, why don't I just stop asking these questions? And then we pick a time and just sit down and talk about it and record it. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. Yeah. And the thing is, I love talking about it. Like, please ask me all the questions. So many people have so many questions when they think about it. Because I mean, just in general, food is something that is so culturally based like it brings everyone together whether it be holidays or catching up like going to grab coffee or brunch whatever it is so being able to come together and talk about it is really nice so I'm yeah I love catching up with you feel free to ask me any questions I'm here for it from so from day to day I am the inpatient and the outpatient dietitian at Cincinnati Children's who work with eating disorders in total there's three eating disorder dietitians. Two of the other dietitians are strictly outpatient, and then I do both inpatient and outpatient. Um, I work at the Liberty Campus, which is where our inpatient facility is. But day-to-day, I attend table rounds in the morning, then I go to bed rounds, meet with families or patients on the unit um, that may need discharge education or just got there and I need to do my assessment. But in the afternoon on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, that's when I'm scheduled with an outpatient clinic through adolescent med division. Nice. So what are some of the differences that you see between your outpatient and inpatient patients? Because you're the only dietitian, right, that does both? Mm -hmm. Yes. So when we think of the main priorities that are, or the main differences between the two, it's honestly medical instability. Um, When we think about those being admitted, we have criteria that we look at. Um, but for outpatient, I mean, 
we still communicate as a team. I'm still within the adolescent med division. So if I do have any questions, usually the medical doctors are right outside my office. So we're able to communicate about patients, but those who are on the unit, um, we meet every morning. We're always constantly talking about them or um, being able to just jump right in and ask parents questions or the kid questions. But it's also such a controlled environment. Like I'm counting, well, our diet technician is counting every single calorie and creating the menus for these patients. And we're assessing every day their needs and meet what needs to change fluids. But outpatient wise, I just get a general idea. Like, okay, tell me about a typical day this past week and last week. And just being able to assess what the patient is telling me versus what the numbers I'm seeing that are being charted from nurses and diet techs, et cetera. Mm. What's like the primary difference between the like actual, because that was kind of your, the difference from like your point of view, which is really good um, yeah. to hear that and kind of what your day-to-day differences are between outpatient and inpatient and what the team looks like, all that type of stuff. What, what about like for the patients that are coming to you? Like what's the difference between an outpatient patient and some of the struggles they're having compared to someone who's inpatient? When we look at a specific inpatient patient. They are generally there just for medical stability. So they're not meeting with the psychologist constantly. We're honestly getting them medically stable and setting up a good plan to get them home, which is the more the psychologist role of being able to lay out a foundation using family-based therapy or whatever it is to get them prepared. But more outpatient wise, we're looking at the beliefs and the education put into it but inpatient, it's getting them stable and getting them able to leave the hospital to get the help that they need. It's kind of crazy that someone can take their eating disorder so far that they have to be inpatient at a hospital just to get back to being medically stable, not even like healthy, just like medically stable. So like what, what kind of brings someone to that point? What, why would someone need to be inpatient? Yeah. So I think everything stems from restricted intake or restricted fluids, nutritional deficiencies or inappropriate behaviors like purging excessive exercise or anything like that. But they all lead to different criteria that we look at when someone is being admitted, whether that be bradycardia and their heart rate being super low or different orthostatic changes from sitting to standing and their heart rate working too hard, feeling dizzy, Or again, we see like acute food refusal where kids don't eat for a few days and um, they're brought into us to make sure that they're medically stable. We always provide them food. That's the first defense. So we give them their snacks. We give them their meals. If they refuse that, they get boost. How how common is it for them to refuse like their meals then if they're inpatient? I wouldn't say. You can just throw out a guess if you need to. I, I wouldn't say that it's it's very common because we have those backup defense because if they don't eat, they get boost. If they don't drink their boost, they get an NG tube and the boost goes down the NG tube. So either way, food is the medicine and we say that all the time and either way, do they're they, going to get it somehow. Do they know that if they, they're going to refuse their meal, then it's going to get a boost and if they refuse the boost, it's going to, okay. So they're like, all right, I guess I have to eat. Is that yes. kind of are they kind of like upset about like having to eat or being forced to eat most of the time since they struggle with disordered eating or are they pretty like receptive of it? They well, just like anybody, we know food gives us energy and food is essential to live just like breathing, eating water. Like those are essential things that we all need. Mm, Right. Right. 
So what are some of the consequences of these people that have taken it so far with their disordered eating that they're now inpatient? I know one thing you told me when we were on the phone that was super interesting was, and really sad is that some of them can't really think straight or I think you said they can't form sentences because their brain's not getting fuel. So that might be one of the consequences. Can you kind of dive into that consequence and maybe um, into some other consequences that you see from people that are inpatient? Yeah, I think that leads to um, what is being restricted. So if we think about just nutrient deficiencies in general, that's one thing that it can lead to. I think it depends on the severity of the restricted intake. So as you're talking about, yeah, there, there are times where the kid is so malnourished that their brain is just not functioning properly. Um, and we see that in them. Um, I have patients that I saw previously back when they were being admitted and now they're weight restored, they're doing well. Um, they have regular menses, all that jazz. They're able to work out, they're able to eat, and they are a totally different person. Um, they're able to talk to me. They're able to make jokes. They, a lot of pa- parents say that like their kid's sassiness is coming back and right. being able to see that is great because they used to have it and they just didn't have the energy for it. Mm. That's so, that has to be so rewarding for you to see that. Mm-hmm. I it's remember, exciting. go ahead. I was just going to say, it's really exciting, especially those who were on our unit were sent to more of a psychiatric place to work with eating and their mental health. And then they see me back again, outpatient. It's just a full loop around being able to see the the changes. Yeah. Um, it's kind of similar with my career in sports nutrition too, where, um, either whether it was in my training or my own business and, and these people weren't even under eating to the same extent as the people you're seeing, but you can still, even if they're under eating, um, a little bit, you can tell once they start fueling their body the right way, all the things you were saying kind of happen with them just on a lesser scale. Um, they come in and they're more bright, they're more energetic, they're more talkative. Um, they're, they're more, like you said, even like sassy, like they're making jokes. Um, they just seem to be like a little bit more joyful. They have a little bit more of a pep in their step because now they're fueling their body the right way. Yeah. I mean, even if we think about just like not fast or fasting for a little bit or waking up and getting super busy and forgetting to eat breakfast or pushing it back. We all get a little bit hangry. We get hungry, we get angry. And imagine doing that for weeks on end or months Mm -hmm. on end. You're going to get to that point. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Like you're basically just hangry for weeks and months (laughs) at a time. (laughs) It's good to use that word too. Like even parents are like, yeah, they get really moody. And I, I have to use that word. Like it's a, a word that people use now. So as a right. dietitian, I'm here for using the word hangry. <laughs> now, are you allowed to put that like in the medical chart? Like, does that fly as medical terminology? I, I don't, I don't know, but I think <laughs> I should tell Cincinnati children's that we should add that. <laughs> right. That's something we got to work on. We got to get that in the medical literature. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what takes them to this point of starving themselves so much. I'm talking about the inpatient specifically that, um, or not eating so much that they bring themselves to have to be in a hospital to get medically stable. Is it the social pressures they experience from maybe their peers? Is it addictive behaviors? Kind of what, what is it that brings them to this point? I think it can be a bunch of different factors that lead into it. We use the term a perfect storm a lot, where just a bunch of different factors have kind of gone into it, whether it be, I hear a lot, oh, I was just trying to be healthy and I cut out snacks and then it led to this and led to this. It's usually a gradual change that I see. And 
it's, it's hard because they don't realize it until the next day when the doctors are telling them, Hey, you've actually lost 30% of your body weight. Something that just wakes up, wakes them up to realize that it's gotten to this point. So are some of them maybe genuinely ignorant of what they're doing to their bodies? Like they genuinely don't realize how bad it is. Yeah. And I think too, since I work with pediatrics, I mean, the youngest kid I've had is nine and the oldest person I've had is 24. So I have a wide range of nutritional knowledge, I would say with the kids that I work with or patients that I work with. Um, So just honestly giving them general knowledge. Some of them don't know like, okay, um, I've heard of the keto diet. I've seen that word before. I just know that I can't eat carbohydrates and being giving the basic knowledge of why do you need carbohydrates? Some of them don't even know what, what they're doing. So being able to just talk about different food groups and give them that knowledge and make it acceptable that all foods fit. Mm, Interesting. I was going to ask this later in the podcast, but I feel like this is a great spot for this question is, so how can we as whether we're parents or friends of someone or me and you and others listening that are health professionals, how can we kind of prevent this from happening? Because you said it's kind of a lot of it stems from a lack of knowledge and they genuinely like don't realize what they're doing. So what can we do to, to prevent this behavior? I think it's more being aware of the signs I think it's hard to block ourselves off from society, whether it be stuff they see on the websites or on videos, um, whatever it is, it's hard to block it out. Or just, again, the conversation around food with holidays and Mm. being exposed um, to different cultural nutritional views. Um, But individuals are going to present in different ways, whether it be rigid eating, eliminating food groups, avoiding social situations, um, having different food rules or rituals. Um, they don't have to all be physical with growth or weakness. It can be behavior wise as well. Yeah. And there's probably varying degrees of severity too, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen athletes as well too, where, they're just not fueling themselves properly. And that's what led to nutrition, like imbalances is they're still eating. Hey, I'm eating three meals. I'm eating two snacks, but we're still not fueling ourselves the way that we need to be. And that's, what's led to this decline. Right. And I'm almost thinking like an athlete who's doing maybe two hour practices and an hour lift, and maybe they're even active outside of that. And they're, they're doing schoolwork and all this stuff. Um, maybe three meals for them is actually way less nourishing than one meal would be for the average person that's not in sports, just because their energy demands are so much higher than someone who might not be in sports. Yeah. So and then, be, oh, sorry, I was just ahead. to say, it might be even more prevalent for them because they think they're eating enough, but they don't realize that it's not even close to matching up with the, all the activities that they're doing. Exactly. And the other thing we have to think about is being able to just get the nutrition to match their needs. Um, most of these kids are still growing and need to hit normal growth for age and they have to be weight and get weight restored. So that on top of it is hard for them to conceptualize, um, because they are so young, their bones are still growing. They're growing taller, things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so how inpatient wise, I'm still on the inpatient. Eventually we'll switch to a little bit about outpatient, but inpatient, what do you do practically? to begin to help them. Now you mentioned doing like you offer them food. Um, If they don't take that, you get a boost. If they don't take that, it's an NG tube. Is there anything else you do to begin to help them inpatient? 
So inpatient, I, I wouldn't say really. We start a zinc supplement, um, whether they need their labs to be normalized before being outpatient where we can help them more. But again, it's more medically, getting them medically stable. Hmm. And that mostly just involves getting food in them. Yeah. Um, and whether if they have dehydration, making sure that they're hydrated. Um, but another one of our like discharge criteria is making sure that we set them up with a good meal plan that is showing good weight gain for their age or getting them on the right track to be weight restored. Um, or just a meal plan that's meeting their needs, depending on what they do outpatient. Um, if they are older and they are just needing normal growth. Gotcha. So I imagine like if they, and I remember learning about refeeding syndrome in undergrad, and I don't really deal with that a lot in practice now, but basically like if you're not eating much food at all for a long period of time, and then you reintroduce food? Um, do you have to kind of be careful with the amount of food and type of food you're doing? Like what's, are there any risks associated with reintroducing like large amounts of food after they've been in a facet state for so long? Yeah. So when we think about refeeding syndrome, it's basically just those that have possibly had a lot of weight loss or have restricted for a long period of time. Um, there are different electrolyte shifts that can happen within the body Usually that phosphorus lab that I talked about is what we watch most closely, but all that can lead to different things like diarrhea, weakness, edema, shortness of breath, even seizures to cardiac failure. So being able to take those labs every day and monitor those, um, we're always looking for that. But again, the risk of refeeding syndrome is only, is the highest between usually day three to seven. So being able to watch it progress. Um, and again, we're looking at it every single day and we are making advancements different days. Um, but we also look at what they were doing outpatient as well. Interesting. So let's kind of switch to outpatient what's inpatient. I'm getting that the goal is primarily just get them medically stable outpatient. What's the goal look like there? What's it look like to help these, um, these kids, these patients. I think that's when it's just repairing their relationship with food that has been damaged. Um, being able to know that there are no good or bad foods. And at the end of the day, we want them to be intuitively eating. So many, they hear me time and time again, this is the meal plan. We got three meals, X amount of snacks, have this amount of boost a day, but end goal wise, we want them to be able to eat intuitively and pick their foods, um, be able to go out and eat somewhere with friends and family and um, be able to enjoy the food and celebrate it. Hmm. So I'm just curious, like what brings someone to being admitted outpatient? Is it their parents like realizing that there's an issue that needs to be addressed? Is it maybe a coach or something realizing there needs to be an issue or kind of what brings them to outpatient? Yeah. So we usually get referrals or the medical team gets referrals from patients that are seeing other doctors, um, whether it be within Cincinnati Children's or within um, different divisions at other doctor's offices, but they get the referral and then our medical team sees them and then they're set up with a whole team if we deem them right for our program. Hmm, interesting. And Cincinnati Children's is one of the top in the U.S., right? Yeah, I know a lot of people come from all over. I actually had one patient fly from California. Um, so we get a bunch from 
all over. Um, I am only licensed in Ohio, but I know that a couple medical providers on our team are licensed in other states. So they're able to see patients from, from a little bit farther than I can. <laughs> what's, a, what's a little bit about the controversy regarding how to treat eating disorders? Because I remember asking this, or you telling me this on our phone call, and I never really got an answer. So I'm interested to know what the controversy looks like around how to treat eating disorders. Specifically within like medical and nutritionally or one-on-one sessions. I think we were getting at inpatient. Okay. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah. Yeah. So if there's controversy about- in both, then you can, you can <laughs> elaborate, but I think yeah, I meant the question to be about inpatient. Yeah. So when we think about inpatient, it's kind of hard. Um, there's a bunch of, there's a less empirical data and agreement on the pace and taking caloric goals to a different level. So whether that be starting patients at a thousand calories and bumping up 200 or starting at 1500 and bumping it up 200 calories every day, this discussion is kind of something we all talk about every single day. And I think it depends on the patient as well and being able to meet them where they're at to lower the risk of refeeding syndrome. And we have eating disorder journal club meetings at Cincinnati Children's. And it's just something that we all kind of look at and reassess and try to look at new data that comes out. But there's so many factors going into it and so many things and questions of, well, what about this? What about this? Mm. Um, this leads to this. So Lots being of things to to have, consider. Yeah, to have a study that answers all those questions and set, set the guidelines is really hard. Mm. So you all actually like take time to sit, like part of your week is actually like sit down and read the new research with the other dietitians on your team to kind of see what's out there. So we have an eating disorder, eating disorder journal club each month, and it depends. It's sometimes more um, psychiatric or sometimes more medical, sometimes more nutritional. It's just depending on who is presenting their article that week or that month. Hmm. Are there inpatient guidelines? from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, or does each hospital kind of make their own guidelines on how they're going to treat eating disorders inpatient? Yeah, each each inpatient unit has different ones, and we all kind of look at each other. So you could compare Cincinnati Children's to um, another facility, but we all kind of do different things. So being able to communicate and figure out what we see works the best. But again, there are so many factors that go into it. So it can be hard. Right. And it's probably pretty individualized as well, I would imagine. So. Yeah. Depending on starting starting at lower calories or starting supplementation earlier, just all depends. Hmm. So I want to go back to the question. We're getting near the end here. Um, I asked you earlier, what can we do to kind of prevent these harmful behaviors? What if we specifically know of somebody who's struggling with disordered eating or eating disorders, they're somewhere on this spectrum. How do we approach that conversation? Do we have that conversation? Like, I guess it probably depends what your relationship is with the person, whether you're a friend or whether you're their uh, RD or whether you're their parent, but kind of just in general, what, how do you kind of approach that conversation? If you should have a conversation. Uh, that No, it's a good question. I think it's a conversation that needs to be had because we know that these behaviors can change and they can become compulsive. Um, they get, 
people can get into a routine and continue doing that routine. And again, they wake up and one day they don't recognize that they've done this damage to their body. Um, I hear time and time again, I, I'm healthy, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. But at the same time, we can see that they're just damaging their body through malnourishing themselves. Interesting. They, they think they're doing the right thing because they see like keto is healthy or so-and-so is healthy or losing. They might even think just losing weight in general is healthy because it's, it's so prevalent out there. And so they think they're doing the right thing when they're really just absolutely damaging their bodies. Yeah. And I think being knowledgeable to not make comments, um, about weight, we all look and act a different way and being Mm -hmm. able to recognize that if someone is X, X amount of pounds or X height, it doesn't mean that they're healthy. It matter. It matters the labs and, um, the mentality that they have around food and that healthy thought process. Mm. And I would imagine a lot of it comes down to the parents and how they raise their kids around food. And the, the example that dads and moms are setting with their own relationship with food is kind of how their kids will probably uh, see food. I think, yeah, it, not that it's a lot of people may think that families are the ones to blame, but they, they really aren't. One of our main um, main defenses is family-based therapy. That's um, what our psycho our psychologists try to use, um, and re- really relying on their on the family to step in and be able to take the pressure off of those kids, be able to make the meals, make the snacks, um, just like we're doing in the hospital. All the family has to do is kind of make the meals, and it's going to be the kids' job just to eat it. Right. So being able to take that pressure and that stress off of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this has been a lot of good information. It's been really eye-opening for me to kind of see how severe it can get. And I think the most surprising thing that I learned from you today is that a lot of these kids don't realize what they're doing. Like they think what they're doing is actually healthy. That kind of came as a shock to me, but it kind of makes sense, especially dealing with the pediatric population where maybe the only uh, source of information they're getting is from social media where, you know, weight loss is glorified or Um, all these like hyper healthy lifestyles are kind of glamorized. And so it kind of makes sense that that would be the case, but it was just surprising for me to hear that because I would, I always thought that it was like a conscious decision. Like I'm going to restrict, um, or I'm going to, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah, it's kind of surprised to me with that. Yeah. And Jen, and even when it goes back to just not fueling ourselves enough, just being able to have that general knowledge of, I know I'm going to be doing this X activity and I need to fuel myself with Y being Mm -hmm. able to know how to do those things. Exactly. That's so good. So last question, this isn't one that I gave you, but what it's an easy one. What is your favorite part of your job? My favorite part of my job would probably be as I kind of already talked about is seeing the change in the patients, being able to see them change into a new person person and be able to communicate and make those jokes and smile at me and be able to have those conversations of, you know what, I had ice cream and I don't feel guilty about it. And I loved eating it. Or I was able to get up, go get a banana and peanut butter. And I loved it. (laughs) Seeing those changes are amazing. That's awesome. And to know that you were able to play a role, however big or small in that healing is awesome. And it has to be super rewarding. Love it. (laughs) Where, where can people find you if they have any questions or are curious about this? Maybe there's some future RDs listening that 
maybe are interested in getting into this field and helping the same type of patients as you are. So where can they find you? Where can they um, get in your DMs and ask you questions if they want to? Yeah, I have an Instagram. It's lakes.steedservings. Um, you can find me there or my email is on Cincinnati Children's website. So you guys can feel free to email me if you guys have any questions. Cool. I will link that in the show notes as well. But Lakin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was so much fun. Thank you. It was so good talking to you. Awesome.